We're going to be uh, looking in the book of Revelation this morning. Uh, eventually we'll get there. And I was just kind of joking at the first that I didn't know what today is. Today is one of the largest secular religious holidays in America, uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, you know, you talk to people about the Super Bowl and, and you know, some people are for this team because they want the, the quarterback to win and some people are from this other team because they're cool or culturally relevant or something. I don't know. But a lot of people just want there to be a close. Some people are for the, are for the commercials. But a lot of people just want it to be a close game. I mean, they, want to, they don't want it to be a blowout. They want it to be this nip and tuck, you know, back and forth game that's decided by maybe a, a, a great play at the very end where there's a, a narrow victory on a, on a last minute play that enables one team just to, to barely squeak out the win. That's what a lot of people want. <clears throat> well, a lot of believers live like that's how it's going to be for the church. That it's getting close to near the end of the game and it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to come right down to the end and it's going to be close. Look at the world around us. It's going to be close. And it seems like we're in the fourth quarter and the other team is driving and somehow, I don't know how it happened, but the other team has got all the momentum. Just look at the issues going on today. The, you know, you can, you can read about and see the, 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 the godlessness and the, the moral laxity in America. And we're living in a time around the world where more Christians are persecuted for their faith than ever. Come on, Jesus, we need you to make a big play. We need you to pull it out in the end so that we can sneak out and eke out a victory. That's how a lot of Christians live their lives. That's how they feel it's going to be for the church. And the book of Revelation addresses this mentality and what it's saying is simple. It says Jesus wins. It says that Jesus overcomes and it's not really very close. And because Jesus wins, that means his people win. And sometimes it's hard when you read the book of Revelation because we get confused with all the symbolism that's in the book, just as it is hard sometimes to understand in our lives with all the confusing difficulties, how can Jesus possibly win? But he does. He overcomes in the end and his people overcome. The victory is his and he has won the game all along. And that's the message in the book of Revelation. And here's what it means for us. Now listen to this and think about this. A believer doesn't operate to gain the victory of Jesus. A believer operates from the victory that Jesus has already gained for us. Now, why does Jesus win? Why is it that Jesus gets the victory? It's because of who he is. It's because of what he's already done. That's what the whole first chapter of the book of Revelation is about. That's what is established there. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we read this. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler of the king's of the earth. That is a powerful statement. It says that Jesus has all power and authority. It says he is a 
faithful witness, and the word is the word amartia, amartia, from which we get the word martyr. And so to say that he is a faithful witness is not saying he's like a witness on a witness stand that, that, that tells what he has seen, but he is a faithful witness by the life that he has lived. And that's true. The, the, the life he lived, his miracles that he performed, his uh, uh, fulfillment of all the prophecies, his death on the cross, in conquering death with the resurrection, Jesus Christ lived a life completely on his terms, on the terms that were given to him by the Father. He is a faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. Doesn't mean he's firstborn like he's the oldest, but that's a, that's a word denoting rank. He is preeminent. He is firstborn. He is number one. And then it says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. What are the kings of the earth? They're the rulers. They're the authority on earth. It says that Jesus is the authority over all the authorities. He is the ruler of all rulers. Jesus has power and authority far beyond what we could ask or think or imagine. And that's why it's easy for him to gain the victory that Jesus wins. And then he says something else. It's one thing that Jesus has power and authority. But that verse continues. It says, to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him who loves us, the one who has all power and authority over all power and authority loves us. He has locked us into his favor. The continual, ever-present grace, the active favor of God. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has freed us not so that we could just be free now and do whatever we want. But he has freed us so that we can follow him. And when you look at the vision of Jesus that's given in chapter 1 of Revelation, where he's clothed with majesty, where his eyes are like flames of fire, where his voice booms like 10,000 Niagara Falls, his face is a dazzling brightness. It's a picture of power and authority. In fact, the Bible tells us there is no greater authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Jesus holds the universe together by the power of his authority. It is his power and authority that conquered death. And why is this important? Why is, why is the authority of Jesus so important? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, it's because it's true authority. I had a friend uh, in high school whose name was Jim, and Jim had, a, had an old, white, beat-up Datsun. And he also had a flashing light that he could suction to the roof of his car. And not only that, but he had a loud voice that carried very, very well, and he could sound just like a police siren. And so from time to time, my friend Jim would park out on a dirt road just off of a blacktop road called Horseshoe Drive out in the country. And when cars at night would drive along fast, Jim would 
turn on that Datsun, and he would speed out of that dirt road, and rocks and dirt would be flaring up in the back, and he would chase that car down. He would have that, that, uh, that light suction on the roof of his car, and his head would be out the window, and he would sound just like a policeman, and the cars would see it, and they could hear it, and then they would slow down and pull over, thinking that he was a policeman. It was great fun, until they realized that my friend Jim made a lot of noise, but he actually had no authority. He wasn't a policeman, and he had no power. My friend Jim was writing checks that there's no way he could possibly cash, and more often than not, after he pulls somebody over, they realize that they were pulled over by this white, beat-up Dotson with a guy howling out of his window, and they actually begin to chase him. No power, no authority. And there are people in our culture today who, who, who discount or don't believe in Jesus Christ as he really is. And so their lives are lived and they speak in a way that either ignores or flat out denies the true nature and authority of Jesus Christ. You might have seen the Grammys last week, for example. And to many, it can seem persuasive. It might make people slow down. It might make people even stop to hear what they say. But in the end, compared to Jesus Christ, they're just like my friend Jim and his little Dotson. They're making a lot of noise. You see, Jesus Christ loves us, and he exercises true authority. And the second reason his authority is important is because, because it impacts our faith so greatly. You remember the story of the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8? Remember the centurion came to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you heal my paralyzed servant? And Jesus says, well, do you want me to come to your house and heal him now? And the centurion, remember what he said? He said, you don't need to come. You just say the word and he will be healed. And he said, for I too am a man under authority. I tell soldiers to come and to go, and they do it. And you remember Jesus' response? Jesus said, I have not found a man in Israel with faith as great as that. Now, why did Jesus say that? Why did he give such a compliment to the faith of the centurion? It's because the centurion understood authority. He understood that the authority of Jesus was given to him by our Heavenly Father. Understanding the authority of Jesus is essential to our faith. So if nothing else, I want us to have a high view of the active authority and power of Jesus. Because you see, walking confidently with God starts with that view of Jesus Christ, of his lordship, And that is the takeaway from the book of Revelation. Now, that's only the introduction. Our passage is important today as we look at the third letter, uh, the letter to the church in Pergamos. Now, some of your Bibles might say Pergamum, and some of your Bibles might say Pergamos, but it's interchangeable. I might even say that. It means the city has two, two names. It's just the way that it ends. What was going on there 
back in 100 A.D., is a situation that's threatening our church even today. And if we allow that situation to occur in our hearts, then it will do great harm even to the strongest believer. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things he, sa- he says, Who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. That is the word of the Lord that lasts forever. What's going on here? I'm telling you a word. Compromise. Specifically, there was compromise in this church. They were compromising the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, compromise can be good. Ask anyone who, uh, who's married. They'll say, you know, uh, compromise is essential to a good marriage. I'm going to say, okay, honey, if you put the cap on the toothpaste, I'll promise to put the seat down when I'm done. Or you know the rhyme, you know, you know the, the, the little nursery rhyme, Jack Spratt could eat no fat and his wife could eat no lean. But they worked it out, didn't they? Betwixt them both, they licked the platter clean. I can just get this picture of compromise where Mrs. Spratt is going. She got the bad end of that. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, Jack Spratt couldn't eat fat. His wife could, uh, uh, his wife could eat no lean. So Jack Spratt got all the lean meat and his wife got all the fat. That means she's going to the store and say, here's some wonderful lean meat for my, my wonderful husband, Jack. And then she's reading, up, reading the labels. Wow, look at all the trans fat in this. That's perfect for me. She really got the bad end of that. But she compromised. They compromised and somehow it made a good nursery rhyme. Well, not really a good nursery rhyme. Compromise can be good, but it can be bad. What about the actions of a spouse who does something to compromise the bond of marriage, who breaks the trust, who, who harms it. Well, in that case, compromise is not a good thing. And the compromise that's going on in this church in Pergamos wasn't a good thing either because it was immoral. There was a religious compromise. They're eating food to idols. And then there is a physical compromise. They're engaging in immorality. And I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think we can say that most of the difficulties we encounter outside from an outside trial or something like that, but most of our internal difficulties that we deal with in our marriages or in our families or in our personal lives or our confidence issues that we might have, whatever struggles we have can usually be traced back to either never understanding the fullness of the authority found in Jesus Christ are simply by living in a way that compromises his authority in our lives. 
And we need to encourage each other to hold on to the proper view of Jesus, his power and authority and his love, to hold on to that in order to walk confidently with him. Because you see, belief leads to behavior. A.W. Tozier once said that men used greatly by God think great thoughts of God. So a little bit about the city. What is it about this, this city of Pergamos that Jesus says it's where Satan's throne is? Well, Pergamos was the center of godless wisdom and power and wealth. It was the capital city of the region, so you know what that means? That means there was a heightened awareness of emperor worship, and that was a big deal in these churches because uh, what they had to do is they had to go and sprinkle incense on the altar once a year in a temple of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And the current Caesar at the time, Domitian, was no friend of Christians. And that if they did that once a year, they would get a certificate and they would be good for a year. They could worship or do whatever they wanted. But if they didn't, then they would risk being imprisoned or even be killed. And it was the capital city of the region. That's one thing. Another thing, it had the second largest library in the world. 200,000 volumes of parchment and papyrus. I mean, that's, that's not books. That's wrapped up scrolls. 200,000. So it was a center of knowledge. So if you wanted something, if you wanted to, to make your life right, if you wanted your life to be better, you go to there because you can gain the knowledge for that to happen. And then the other thing, it was a center of medicine. Um, people came all over because it was a center of medicine. In fact, there was a temple there. It was a temple dedicated to Asclepios. He was the god of healing. And it is said that if you were sick and you wanted to be made well, you would come to this temple. And you would lie down on the temple floor and go to sleep and spend the night on the temple floor. And somehow that night, well, they would have non-venomous snakes crawling all over the temple floor. And it was said that if one of these snakes crawled over your body while you were sleeping, then you would be healed. How many of you would rather be sick? But that was a form of worship. You know, if today, if you look at the, the symbol for the AMA or even the Veterinary Association or the, the, the Army Medical Corps, there's, there's snakes that are intertwined around, uh, around their symbol. So, so that was going on. And then there was always the abundance of religious uh, pagan temples. There was a temple of Zeus that was 100, 100 feet wide, 40 feet tall. It was up on a hill. Immorality was not just condoned, but it was encouraged in worship, and thus the culture of Pergamos, a place of oppressive spiritual darkness. There's places like that in the world today. And you remember in uh, Smyrna, you know, Jesus talked about having the synagogue of Satan. But here in Pergamos, he says, this is where Satan's throne is. This is the enemy's base of operations. And remember, Satan tends, wants to kill steal and destroy, not just in Pergamos, but in the church and in our hearts as well. And there was an abundance of false gods being worshipped. It was a great center of learning and of medicine where you could trust in that. Wealth and power and knowledge. Where Satan's throne is. All in an attempt to 
make sure Jesus is not seated in his rightful place on the throne. I mean, it was the fourth quarter there. And it seems like the other team was winning. Yet in the midst of this, we see that Jesus commends them. Jesus says to that little church there, he says, you have upheld my name. He says, you have remained true to my name. You have practiced the integrity of my name, and you have represented me well in the midst of this decadent persecution. They were showing up to worship Jesus rather than showing up to worship Caesar, or rather than showing up in the, in the temple to worship with prostitutes. Even when one of their own, Antipas, was, was arrested and tried and convicted and killed for his faith, they remained true. So in that sense, their behavior reflected their belief. They were commended. But then in verse 14, we begin to see a criticism or a great concern that Jesus has. He says, I have a few things against you. Or your translation might have, nevertheless, there was, an, there was an issue there. And it speaks directly against this authority of Jesus. And it speaks of one of the ways that Satan attempts to steal, kill, and destroy. Not just churches as a whole, but believers individually. Remember the first time that uh, I went canoeing. You know, I'm getting in the canoe. It was a little shaky. So, so I thought I'd just see how shaky, you know, how much you could shake this thing before it, before it was really bad. And uh, if you've ever been in a canoe, it's not like a flat boat. But a canoe, you shake, you shake, you shake, and if you get a little too much, without warning, it flips over. And that's exactly what happened. So I'm shaking this thing, you know, I'm in the water. And the, and the canoe is upside down. You could barely see the top of it. So I got the canoe and I sort of dragged it over to where I could stand and then I tried to flip it over and when I flipped it over there was still water in the canoe and it was partially submerged and it didn't work. The water had gotten in the canoe and consequently the canoe was compromised and sinks. Well the church in Pergamos was like that canoe. And they were allowing a group in that church to fill that canoe with water, and it was quite serious. They were teaching this false doctrine that compromised the authority and the integrity of Jesus Christ to pursue sensual pleasure. Now, what did they do? Well, it says that they they adopted the doctrine of Balaam. Now, what is that? Well, that's found in Numbers 22 through 25. It's an interesting story because Balaam was 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 a weird guy. He was a prophet. But he was also greedy. He was a greedy prophet. Now, uh, Balak was the king of Moab. And Moab was sort of an enemy of Israel. And Balak would look over and watch everything that's going on in Israel. And he'd see when Israel fight, would fight battles. And he noticed something, that the Lord gave Israel victory. They won every battle they fought. So he began to get a little bit worried. And he said, well, you know, that's wonderful, but, you know, what if they come over and attack, attack me? Then they're going to they're gonna beat me up pretty bad if their track record says anything. And I don't want that to happen. I want to do something about this. So he calls up Balaam, the prophet, and he says, Balaam, I will give you a bunch of money, and I will give you a high place in my kingdom, a position of power. I'll give you money, and I'll give you power if you put some curses on the nation of Israel. Well, Balaam says, I'll do that. 
So he starts to curse Israel, and he'd curse him, and God would bless him, and he would curse him, and God would bless him. And it got where every time he tried to curse Israel, God would bless them, and it wasn't working. So Balaam said, you know, king goes to Balaam, and he says, you know, this is not working, but I've got an idea. You want to defeat Israel? You want to curse Israel? I've got the perfect idea. Here's what you need to do. You need to get the best-looking women that you've got in your country of Moab, and you need to throw in some temple prostitutes, and you need to go over there with the men of Israel, and I guarantee you that as you do that, those men will start to engage in immoral practices, and I will bet you that soon they will be so compromised from within that they will be worshiping your gods, and they will be motivated by their sensual pleasure, and they will be destroyed. And that is exactly what happened. Numbers 25 says, And the people begin to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. And then it says later that God sent a people against a plague against the people of Israel, and he calls it the congregation of the Lord. You see, what Balaam was to the Israelites, these Nicolaitans were to the church in Pergamos. Israel, Pergamos, and that can happen in the church today, and that can happen in our hearts as well. You remember the church in, in Ephesus? Ephesus uh, was con- commended for holding on to the truth, to the doctrine of the Word of God. It even says that they didn't allow the Nicolaitans to come into their church. But they were criticized or, co- or condemned by the Lord because they didn't practice love. So they were so high on doctrine that they didn't practice love. Perhaps the problem with this church in Pergamos is just the opposite. Perhaps they allowed their doctrine to slide because they were so into practicing love. I mean, maybe they're saying things like, hey, I know that this is probably not right, but, you know, it's wrong, but, but live and let live. You know, I don't want to rock the boat. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't want to be legalistic. We don't want that. I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to be unfair. I mean, I really want to show the grace of God, and it's not really my place to tell them what to do. And somehow the question had ceased to be, is it true? And it had become, was anyone offended? You know, it, it really shouldn't be surprising when, when we watch the news or we watch entertainment uh, or whatever, and, and sometimes we see immorality promoted, sometimes even worshipped. It shouldn't surprise us because that's out there, because that's how people live who default to the influence of the flesh and the world system. It's out there. But it's quite different when it gets into the church of Jesus Christ. And that's not only true of the church out there, it's true of the church in our hearts. So we need to ask ourselves periodically. From time to time, we need to, we need to ask, have I allowed my heart to be compromised by these Nicolaitans? Lord, do I sense an area in my life when I'm allowing the water of compromise to get into my boat? And you see, the day may come soon, and Jonathan Todd was talking about this in church Wednesday night, when that which is outside the church will find its way inside the church. And that's not new. 
Not only did it exist back then, it exists now. And even the Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, to warn him of this very thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, here's what he says. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. People, will it, people with itching ears will find their own teachers to teach what makes their ears itch. Itching ears. That's when we, we, we test the truth by what we want to do. We test the truth by what we feel like doing. Where our feelings replace the truth, even the truth of God's Word, and itching ears adjust that truth to our feelings and find teachers who will support that. I was sitting with a friend who was struggling with his marriage, and they were working on it, and they were coming to to our church, and and it, it happened that a few months before this conversation, he had met a woman at a bar, and so he had struck up a friendship with this with this woman, and was actually seeing her. And in the course of one of their conversations, they were talking about church, and he was telling where he went to church, and she was telling him where she went to church, and they both went to our church. And so their relationship continued and became more intense. And I remember him saying to me, I remember his justification in continuing this relationship while he's married. I remember him saying to me this, doesn't God want me to be happy? And I don't know the exact words, but I remember what I told him. What I basically, what I told him was this, you are allowing your feelings to dictate your theology and you want me to justify your wrong behavior. And you see, these Nicolotians were adjusting their theology to justify their behavior and it was going on in the church. And what these good Christians in Pergamos, what they were doing is they were allowing this to go on. They're saying, I'm just glad you're coming to church and I don't want to rock the boat either because of fear or for whatever reason. And they were allowing them to compromise the authority of Jesus Christ by practicing immorality and calling it okay. Now let me carry this a little further. If you notice, in verse 14 through 16, who is Jesus speaking to? He's not speaking to this this Nicolaitan bunch. He is speaking to the church. His indictment is against those in the church, the leadership of the church and the members of the church who are allowing this to take place. Somehow, in spite of all the good things that this church was doing, they'd become lax towards falsehood, and they were allowing people to champion immorality in their midst. And he's holding the leadership of the church at Pergamos responsible to balance the love with the peace and purity of the church. And what Jesus is telling the church to do is to deal with this compromise in their midst. And that's what he's telling us to do if we allow compromise to exist in the midst of our hearts. So how do you do this? How do you guard against 
this temptation we all have to compromise our faith. Well, let me just give you several reasons. One of the things we do is we need to constantly examine ourselves in the light of this two-edged sword that Jesus talks about. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is living and powerful. We examine our lives by this two-edged sword and let it do its work in our lives. Another way is we pray this. Lord, is there anything in my life, any attitudes or any actions that is diminishing or discounting the authority and power, the lordship of Jesus Christ in my life? The word, prayer. And I think we need to ask ourselves this. You know, you know what Jesus says is, he says, repent. And if you don't, I am coming to you with this two-edged sword. Does it bother you that Jesus warns this church, Pergamos, and any church and any believer? Does it bother you that he warns those who champion this kind of thing in their lives? That he might come and fight with a sword, whatever that means? John Piper says that those who have the largest hearts for heaven shudder most deeply at the horrors of hell. Antipas, he's one of their, their buddies. He was a member there. He resisted compromise to the point of bloodshed because he would rather die than compromise the authority and the integrity of Jesus Christ. So what informs you? What, 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 what affects you? What influences you? Is it the world? Is it the word? What rules your life? What has the authority and the power in your life? Now, the final thing that we need to talk about is found in verse 17. And, uh, well, verse 17. It's a promise. When you look at these last few verses, here's what it says. It says, to him who overcomes, who is the one who overcomes? That is the believer. If you look at all these seven letters to the churches in, in, uh, uh, in this area of Turkey, each time he ends it by saying to him who overcomes, and he says something different. All of the things he says are qualities and qualifications of believers. And he says to him who overcomes, that's, that's you and me, if you believe in Jesus Christ, I will give him some hidden manna to eat. And I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, what is that talking about? What does that mean? Well, it's a promise. It's a promise to the church in Pergamos, and it's a, a promise to our church today and every church and to every, every believer. You know, authority is not a very popular word in today's world. And one of the reasons is because there's so many authorities who make promises, but they don't keep them. They're like my friend Jim and his, his little Datsun. It's just making a lot of empty noise. But that's not Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who keeps every single promise. And he promises in this verse two things. First, he promises hidden manna. In other words, what he's saying is, I will sustain you. Just as in the days of Moses, I will provide you manna. Even in the wilderness times of your life, that's where manna was provided for the Israelites. Even in the wilderness times of your life, I will provide for you. I will provide your sustenance. I am faithful. I am the bread of life. What is our sustenance that he provides? Himself. He is the bread of life. And he says to all the overcomers, I will sustain you because of who I am. And then the second promise that he gives is this. He says, I will give you a white stone. And what does that mean? Different commentators say different things, but, but I'm going to go with this. Back in the day, a judge would have the authority to decide a case. That's what judges do. They have that authority. And they would have a jar filled with black stones and a jar filled with white stones. And if the judge heard the case and he made a decision and he reached in the jar and pulled out a black stone, that was bad news. It meant you were guilty. But if the judge heard the case and he made a decision and he said, you are innocent, you are not guilty, he pulled out a white stone and he gave it to you. He says, you are not guilty, you may go free. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'll give you this white stone. That Jesus Christ has the authority to, and he is, he is the judge of the world. And he says to every believer, because of what I have done, because I've paid that penalty, you are not guilty any longer because I love you and you are innocent. And now you have this, this white stone. And he wants us to hold on to that. Because whenever we're disappointed with, with compromise in our life, maybe because we've lost sight of the love of Jesus and his power and his authority due to something in our lives, selfishness, sin, he says to repent and remember that you have this white stone that is given to you by the one with the authority to judge the entire universe. It's given to us as assurance. It says, it says you now have a new name, and the name on it is Christian. This name comes with assurance that you are going to be in the family of God. And when we get discouraged with the way things are going on in the world and it seems like the other team has the momentum, well, they don't because we remember this white stone, the assurance, and the reminder that Jesus is still Lord far above all and that his promises will never fail because of who he is. And then finally, this white stone is a ticket. It is a ticket that we are guaranteed a reserved spot at a family reunion. That in the end, we are going to celebrate the full victory of Jesus Christ as part of his family. So when you get a chance, hold up that white stone and proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the Lord of the church in Pergamos. He is the Lord of Grace of Anne. And he is the Lord of every believer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for that that your son is so powerful, that your son has already gained the victory uh, because of the life he lived, because of his death, because of the cross. Thank you that you have called us to respond to that, that gospel message. Father, I pray that we might live our lives in such a way that by your grace and mercy, 
you would make us aware of areas in our hearts that we might have compromised the Lordship of Christ and we could live with the satisfaction in our lives that indeed Jesus is Lord. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.